Today's sermon is taken from James chapter 2, verse 1 to 14. Here's the word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God, has cho- has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor men. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Dit. Friends, if you've been with us for the past few months, you know that we're done now with our series uh, through the book of Exodus, where we talked about the life of Moses. And we're three weeks, three weeks, I think, into our series through the book of James. The book of James is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle James. For who? For the Big C Church. Usually when letters of the New Testament are written, they're written to a particular church for a particular issue. But this one was written to all the churches uh, kind of in James' uh, vicinity, meaning not just to one particular church. So, so to get our passage and what it's trying to say... Let's start from the larger context of the book of James, and then we're going to narrow it down slowly to our passage today, what we just read, okay? So remember last week, the reason why James wrote this letter in the first place was to give wisdom to the church of how to handle trials and sufferings that people experience, uh, that, that the church experienced in the world. Okay, let's narrow that down a bit more. Why were they experiencing trials and sufferings? Well, one of the main reasons of why they're experiencing trials and sufferings in this letter is because there's a lot of infighting and division internally within the church. Okay, let's narrow that down a little bit more. What was causing these divisions and infighting in the church, there are many reasons, but the main issue that's addressed here specifically in our passage today is that there is partiality that happened in the church. James is rebuking the church for being partial, meaning the church back then were favoring some people over other people. And because of that, feelings were hurt, and because of that, divisions were happening, and because of that, the church as a whole suffered, okay? So we've identified what our particular passage today is about. And and before we start, let me just, for clarity's sake, point out what James means by partiality here, what James is rebuking. James is not saying that you have to treat every single person in the same exact way at every single time. That's not what he's saying. Husbands, you can't go out on a date with another girl, then come home and tell your wife, sweetie, I did that because I wanted to treat every girl the same way I treat you. You can't do that. That, that's not, that doesn't work. 
you're not guilty of partiality when you treat your wife differently than another woman, okay? James also does not mean if somebody's unqualified for a job, you have to give that person the same job that you would somebody else who's qualified for the job. That's not what you, you're not guilty of partiality when you do that. That's just common sense. James isn't saying that um, you, have to, you have to be as vulnerable or as close with somebody you don't find to be safe. You have to be as good of a, of a friend to them as you would your best friend who you do find to be safe. He, he's not saying that either. Okay, that, life doesn't work like that. So I wanted to clear that out so that we don't fall into this undue guilt that James isn't really talking about. Let's be specific what James is talking about here with, with partiality, okay? First, the specific issue James is addressing here is that the church as a whole, we're valuing people as more and less honorable based upon how much money and power they have. That's the specific issue here. First, he's rebuking the church as a whole. Where do we get that? Look at verse one and two with me in, in, your, in your passage, in your pronouns. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, your assembly, okay, that, that's a key phrase. Your assembly is saying a church service when Christians were assembling at the time. The picture here is a worship service. Okay, so, so the setting is a worship service. It's about to start. So 9.55 a.m., right, in Lote, Lantai, Lima, fifth floor. And we're here. We're about to start worship service. And then somebody comes in, and the ushers notice, verse 2, a man came in with a gold ring and fine clothing. So, you know, somebody comes in with Gucci's and Prada's, and they walk in, and they get special treatment. And the ushers gave this rich person a seat in the good place. And, if, uh, and in verse 3, a poor person with shabby clothing comes in and he receives bad treatment. That's what verse 3 says. So the ushers give this rich, rich person a good seat in the good place. And if the poor person wanted to sit down, um, he has to sit down, it says, at my feet. This actually translates to next to the footstools. So back then they had footstools that were elevated up. So let me just explain how insulting this picture is. The picture is a worship service is about to start, and uh, the rich people get chairs, and the poor people are told to sit on the floor right next to the elevated feet of the rich people that are being elevated on the footstools next to their faces. That's, That's what's going on in this church. And we may think, you know, that's just so terrible. That's so terrible that churches would do that back then. Back then, let's not be too quick to, to judge them. This, this still happens today. The application is different, but in principle, it still happens. It, it's not rare to find celebrities or powerful people in the community getting special seating at church compared to other people. It's not rare to find someone getting an eldership seat at a church, not because of their robust doctrine, not because of their Christ-like character, but because they're big donators at the church. We all struggle with impartiality. And the church as a whole, this is James rebuking the church as a whole, meaning we're included in it. The church as a whole, we've been trying to get rid of partiality for years, but for some reason, it's just a stubborn sin. It always finds its way back to seep into our culture and how we do things. And I think the reason of why we haven't really maybe fought this sin with the intensity it deserves 
is because I think we don't really quite understand just how bad this sin is. We don't. I, I probably don't need to convince anyone here. You would all agree that partiality is a hurtful, offensive, sinful, and ungracious act. It is hurtful, it's offensive, it's sinful, and it's ungracious. But what James is doing in our passage, he ups the intensity a little bit more, and he says, no, no. I, I don't think you quite understand how bad it is. It's much worse than you think it is. Partiality, it's not just hurtful, it's evil. It's not just offensive, it's addictive. It's not just an isolated sin, it's interconnected with all the other sins. And it's not just ungracious, it's hypocritical. It's not just hurtful, it's evil. It's not just offensive, it's addictive. It's not an isolated sin in its own, it's interconnected. And it's not just ungracious, it's hypocritical. Let's go with the first point. Partiality is evil, not just hurtful. What's the difference? Why did I point out the difference? Let me explain. When you say to somebody, hey, what you did hurt me. That is, uh, you're making that statement as a subjective statement. You're saying the thing that you did subjectively produced a hurt feeling within me. What you did hurt me, so I don't like it. That's, that's what you're saying. But when you say, hey, what you did was evil, that's a much more serious accusation. Why? Because now you're claiming the other person's actions didn't just violate you personally, but it violated an objective law of right and wrong. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not just your feelings were broken. It's that a particular standard of beauty was broken. It's evil. James is saying when you treat the poor this way, that's not when you're being partial, church. That's not just because you're insensitive in your actions. It's because there's evil in, in our heart. And that's a harsh rebuke, I know, but let me show you where from the passage I, I got that. Go to verses 4 and 5. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You see what James is saying here, when we show partiality, we're not treating others the way God does. You see the contrast there with verse 5 and 6? Look at it again. Verse 5, James says, God chooses the poor. Now, now, be careful. It doesn't say God chooses only the poor, okay? God loves regardless of financial state. But God does choose the poor, meaning he does not place value on, and worth on somebody based on their financial well-being. That's what verse 5 says. That's how God operates. But now, contrast that with how we operate often, like verse 6. Uh, church, but you have dishonored the poor man. You see the contrast there with how God loves the poor and the church dishonors the poor? What James is saying, when the church shows partiality, we're being inconsistent with God himself. We're being inconsistent with him who is the ultimate standard of whatever is true and good and beautiful. You see how he ups the intensity a little bit? He, he's saying you can't just chalk this up to social unawareness. When you commit partiality, it's not just social unawareness. It's a lack of righteousness issue. You're not just breaking people's feelings. You're breaking the very example of beauty itself as set out by God. There's a higher standard you're offending. And we're doing this at church. The place where Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, verse 1 says, are, is meant to be represented five minutes before we're about to sing holy, holy, holy. We dishonor the very people that Jesus died for. 
or whatever song it is your church will sing. Socially insensitive, James is saying, no, no, evil. You violated not only the rules of social decency, but you've also violated the very nature of God. And, and we know this to be true, I think, a lot of us. We, we feel that, the intensity of it. But no matter how hard we try and purify ourselves from, from this bad habit, somehow it just still hangs around the church. It just doesn't leave. It finds itself back into it. Why is that? Second point, partiality is addictive, not just offensive. What do I mean here? We, we keep doing it, although we know it's offending others, because partiality is something that is deeply rooted in us. Okay, let's continue down in our passage. Go to the second half of verse 6. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that's 6b. 6b, what I mean is the second part of verse 6 to verse 7. So let's talk about 6b to verse 7, okay? Hopefully you, you'll see what I'm trying to get at. Verse 6b to 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I want to point out a few things here. First, you got to be careful in how you read this passage because it sounds like James is telling the Christians to hate the rich. It sounds like James is saying, look at, look at those terrible rich people. All they do is oppress you and drag you to court. But that is not at all what James is saying. That is not what James is saying. He's not saying hate the rich. That would be reverse partiality, right? Which is just as bad. Uh, so how do we make sense of James' words here? Let's go to verse 7. We can make sense of it by being specific about who it is James is addressing. Look at verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? The, the rich James is addressing here are specifically non-Christian uh, uh, people who have money and power outside of the church who are trying to put the church down. Let me just give you context of what was happening historically uh, uh, in, in the time of the writing of this book. This book was written 20 years before the first huge Jewish-Roman war happened. Okay, so a war broke out before the Romans and the Jews, and the, and the tension for that war that will happen 20 years after the writing of this letter was already building up in James' day while the letter was being written. So there are many powerful, rich Roman officials who are already harassing the Jews, trying to put them down, both non-Jewish Christian, uh, non, uh, non-Christian Jews and the Christian Jews that James is writing to here. Okay, they're, they're trying to take in the court, they're, putting them, they're trying to suppress uh, the church. So the rich and the powerful James was addressing here is not just rich and powerful people in general, it's specifically those, the, the people in that time that was trying to, to destroy the church. One more thing, just to make my point more, more terse. Go back to verse 2 of our passage. Read it again. Look at what the rich person is described to be wearing there. He's described to be wearing a gold ring. A gold ring back then uh, is something that only high-ranking Roman officials would wear. Okay, so he's being very specific. James is saying these rich, powerful uh, Roman people, they're trying to destroy you. They're oppressing you. They're dragging you to court. And, And they're coming to your church. And when they come... You're kicking people off of their chairs for them? Imagine here, it's not saying you can't serve them, but it's saying you're serving them at the expense of others. You're dishonoring other people to please them. So imagine here, the picture is that a non-popular kid at school is hosting a house party. And then his bully, who also happens to be the most powerful, rich, and popular kid at school, surprisingly came to this house party. 
And when the rich, popular uh, bully walks in, immediately the unpopular kid just kind of goes into a frenzy and, and he kicks his real friends off of their chairs to the floor and gives this chair to the bully. And, and James, you know, he's asking, why would he do that? Why would this kid do that? Not because he actually loves and cares about his bully. He's doing it because he wanted to win the bully's approval, even at the expense of other people's honor. So you have to be very specific of what James is saying here. And he's asking the church, church, why would you do that? Why do you get into this, into this frenzy when rich and powerful people come to your worship services? You get into this frenzy and, and, and verses 6b to verse 7, James is trying to point out the senselessness of the action, the irrationality of it. It's like the church is so addicted to approval of the rich and powerful that we would do anything to get it. You know, when we say the word addicts, what immediately comes to mind are alcoholics, right? Or, or drug addicts, people who abuse uh, uh, medication. You know what addiction really is? It's when the data says something is clearly wrong, but yet you can't help yourself from doing it anyways. That's addiction. When the data says it's clearly wrong, you know it's wrong, but yet you can't help yourself, but you still do it. It has power over you. The data says, if I continue drinking this way, it'll ruin my life. But I just can't, I can't help it. The data says, if I don't stop smoking this, it's going to destroy my lungs. But I just can't help it. The data says, if I don't start working less, it'll devastate my family. But I just can't help it. Data says, if I don't stop abusing this medication, it will kill me. But I just can't help it. James here is laying out the data of all the offenses of what those rich, powerful Romans were doing back then in verses 6b to 7. He's not doing this to rebuke the Romans. This wasn't a letter to the Roman, the Roman uh, officers. This was a letter to the church. This is rebuking the church. The focus here, what he's saying is, don't you see the data of what they're doing? They're, they're clearly destroying you. They're, they're killing you. They want to put you down. They're oppressing you. But you just can't help yourself, can you, church? The second you see these rich and powerful people come to your worship services, you get starstruck. You fall into this, this, this frenzy. You start acting senseless, wanting to win their approval. Friends, you know why the church has had such a hard time ridding herself of this partiality? It's because we're addicted to what? To the acceptance of the world. We're addicted to the acceptance of the world. We, we think that if we win the favor of the rich and powerful, you know, if we can just make the gold ring bearers of the world like us, we'd finally then be accepted by the world. And, and James is asking the church, is that what you're doing here? Is that what this is about? To be accepted by the world? Is that why we do church? And, and look, I, I get it. I really do. As a pastor, I think it's safe to say I'm the one that struggles with this sin more than anybody else in this room. And I'm not just saying that to say that. I really mean it. And, and there's some good behind that desire, right? Uh, it's probably produced out of a good motive. We want, we want the gospel to go forth. We want God's kingdom work to be done. 
right? We want, we want to help accomplish that goal. Because of that, in order to accomplish that goal, what do we do? We zoom in on people who seem to have the capital resources to help us accomplish that goal. I'm not saying the church can't raise support and things like that. I'm just asking, or James is asking, are we doing it too much? Have we crossed the line? Have we forgotten that our God is not some petty beggar who need the rich to advance his cause? Have we forgotten that our God is not in the business of soliciting support from the world? He's in the business of glorifying himself by choosing the weak and the foolish to shame the wise and the strong. Why? So that no human being has any room to boast before the presence of God. Have we forgotten that? We justify our bad habit of partiality with the excuse that this is somehow going to help God advance his kingdom work. Do you know who justifies bad habits with seemingly good reasons? Addicts. Addicts do that. To find our worth through the acceptance of the world is an addiction we've had our whole lives, and we've brought it to church with us. I struggle with this more, I'm convinced, than anybody in this room, and I'm not just saying that to say that. Ask people who really know me. They'll tell you it's true. It's hard. It's hard to get rid of. Partiality is not just subjectively hurtful, it's objectively evil. It's not just offensive towards others, it's also an addiction within us. Third, partiality is not an isolated sin, but it's interconnected with everything else. Point three. Let's continue in our passage, verse eight to 10. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So what James is saying here in verses 8 to 10 is that if you show partiality, you've done something that's bad enough to convict you as a transgressor of the whole law, of, of all the law. And you may think of yourself, that's, that's a bit unfair, <laughs> Right? You're saying if I commit partiality, I've also committed murder and adultery? That's, that's a bit unfair. And James is telling us here in verse 10, yeah, kind of, because it's all interconnected. But why? Why is it all interconnected like that? What is the common denominator? What, what does partiality have to do with murder and adultery? Well, James answers us in verse 11. Go to verse 11. What they all have in common, the common denominator between all the law, is that they all came from the same source, God. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder, also said, do not commit partiality. The common denominator is that all these commandments have one God. Now, if all the commandments came from the same source, is it not then possible that they are, are somehow all interconnected? Of course it is. And, and some further thinking will make this more clear and vivid in, in our minds. Let me, let me show us what James is trying to say. When you show partiality, 
that means when you give more worth to those and more honor and more value to those who are rich compared to the poor. That means you really want the resources that these rich men have so badly to the point where you're willing to hurt others to get it. You, you covet what they have, which therefore you've broken the Tenth Commandment, which says, do not covet. Also, uh, when you commit partiality, you're, you're promoting a lie. The lie that poor people have less value than rich people. And therefore, when you do that, you've broken the Ninth Commandment, which is, do not lie. Also, when you do partiality, you're robbing the poor man of the dignity, honor, and worth that belong to them. Therefore, you've broken the Eighth Commandment, which says, do not steal. Dignity and worth they get from where? From being made as glorious creatures in the image of God. You know what happens when we commit adultery? We're perverting the dignity and worth that human beings have as glorious creatures made in the image of God, reduced to a piece of meat. The seed that allows us to commit partiality is the same seed that allows us to commit adultery. Thus, breaking commandment number seven, do not commit adultery. Also, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter six? If you hated your brother, you've also committed murder. When you show partiality to the, to the, to the rich and the poor, you're, you're hating your poor brothers and sisters in Christ. You've broken commandment number six, which says, do not murder. Commandment number five says, honor your father and your mother. But it's much more than that. It really means honor people appropriately based on the place God has placed them in society, in the world. So honor your parents as your parents. Honor Caesar as Caesar. Honor God as God, right? Honor people as people. And when you show partiality, you've not honored people as people and where God has placed them in this world. And therefore, you've broken commandment number five. And when partiality happens in your assembly, during, when you meet during the Lord's day, when you worship, um, as it did for the people James is writing to here, you therefore have not kept the Lord's day holy, and therefore you've broken commandment number four, which says you have to keep the Lord's day holy. And the reason why you're partial to the rich um, uh, is because um, you, you're, you're idolizing and, 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 and you're worshiping uh, them, you're, you're, and you're dishonoring the poor. And when you dishonor the poor, those who are made in God's name, you're also therefore dishonoring God's name because the poor are made in God's name, and therefore a broken commandment number three, which says, do not dishonor God's name. And the reason why you're partial to the, to, to the rich and, and you, 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 you are like this to the poor is because you really idolize and worship the money and the status and the power and the social reputation that the rich people have. And therefore, you've turned those things into your idols and you've worshiped them instead of worshiping the true God. Therefore, you've broken commandment number two that says do not worship idols. We've broken nine out of ten at this point. So how then can we with a straight face look at God and say we worship the God of these commandments? And by doing so, we've broken the first commandment, worship the Lord God, your God. Wasn't that fun? The partial man is the man who's broken all 10 commandments. See, each culture has a particular sin that's stigmatized more in that particular culture. For example, in our, in our culture, okay, one of the more stigmatized sins 
is perhaps adultery. I think that's, that's safe to say, right? Do, do anything else. Just don't commit adultery. That is the big no-no sin. And a commentary also uh, said in the culture of James, in James' culture back then when he was writing this letter, it's also, uh, adultery was also the stigmatized culture. That's why James specifically mentioned it in, in verse 11. What James is saying here, look, you're here all at church, really, 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 really making sure no one commits adultery. You're really, really worried about people not having sex before marriage. But you could care less about the poor and somehow think that you're any better than those who have failed to keep the marriage bed holy? Think again. He who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder and also said the rest of the commandments. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. I just know I'm going to get misquoted somehow and somebody's going to say, Tazar says it's okay to commit adultery. That is not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm not condoning that it's okay to commit adultery. I'm not condoning anyone breaking any of the other Ten Commandments. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm trying to do is, I think what James is trying to do, is heighten the actual filth of partiality. Just because you've obeyed the one sin that this culture thinks is the worst, it doesn't mean you're pure. When you've committed adultery, you've broken them all. You're a transgressor of the whole law. Partiality is not just subjectively hurtful, it's objectively evil. It's not only offensive to others, it's also an addiction within us. It's not an isolated sin, but it's interconnected with all the other sins. And last point, it's not just ungracious, it's hypocritical. What I mean. So, up to this point, James has been harshly rebuking the church without mercy, just throwing transgression after transgression. But then he concludes this section of the letter in verses 12 to 13, and he says, So, Christian, speak, and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, this verse is not as straightforward as you might think it is. Let, let, me, let me just talk about it. I know we've covered a lot, but stick with me a little bit more. It seems like what James is saying is don't judge the poor, but instead be merciful to them. But be caref careful in how you interpret that because mercy here can't mean have mercy as in forgiving them for their sins. It, it can't mean that because being poor is not a moral sin. <laughs> like, it's not a sin. It's not something that needs to be forgiven. So if mercy here doesn't refer to forgiving the poor for being in poverty, what could it then mean? if it's not forgiving a moral sin. Let's break down the understanding of judgment and mercy here more specifically. Judgment can be understood as the natural progression of events that will simply happen to the poor if no one interferes. The natural progression of events that will most likely happen to the poor and helpless if no one interferes. To show mercy here means to interfere, to interrupt, Interfere, interrupt the seeming fate that the poor and helpless is heading toward. So imagine judgment here is like the train tracks of life that the weak and the helpless are on. You know what mercy does? Mercy throws herself onto the train tracks and interrupts the progression of this train at her own expense. That's what James means here by have mercy. Now why would, I ask you, the Christian particularly, more so than anybody else that claims to believe in any other worldview out there, be more inclined 
to do something like this? Why would the Christian be more inclined to do this? Well, let me answer that question by taking a look at this weird phrase that James says in verse 12. T- take a look at it with me. So, so, you know, verses 8 to 11, James has been just rebuking the church, bombarding the church. He's actually used the word law four times from verses 8 to 11. And, and, and three out of those four times, uh, James uses the word law as that we've broken the law, we're transgressors of the law, we have not obeyed the law. It's all been bad. We're convicted because of the law. But now all of a sudden in verse 12, after James rebukes the church for breaking the law, breaking the law, transgressors of the law, James says at verse 12, so you will be judged under the law. And the readers here are going, you know, like they're about to get punched in the face. And they're saying, I know, I know, I've, I've, I've broken the law. I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I know. But then James says something completely surprising. He says, you'll be judged under the law of liberty. And it's like the punch never really came. And the reader goes, what? It's like, you know, the punch never came. And you're thinking to yourself, how in the world can the law that I've broken over and over and over again every day, how can it be liberating? Shouldn't I receive judgment? Shouldn't I be on the first train toward judgment? We ask ourselves. And yes, the answer is you should be. Unless someone threw himself on the train tracks for you and interrupts your path toward judgment. Let me ask you again, why should the Christian, more than anyone else with our worldview, be motivated to show no partiality? Because of the cross. Where the most powerful and richest being in the universe gave up his power and became poor so that he can interrupt the train tracks you're on. He threw himself at it unto the cross so that you may receive mercy. If we claim to believe this but don't live like it, how hypocritical is that? I'm not saying the goal is Marxism. I'm not saying the goal is for everyone in the world to have the same exact amount of money at every single time at all times. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus himself says you'll always have the rich and the poor with you. It's always going to be. James said in chapter one, uh, James, the author of our book, said in chapter one, in the church, there's going to be the rich and the poor. If you're poor in the church, remember your high status in Christ. Remember your honor and worth in Christ. You're valuable. You're worthy. And if you're rich, remember how poor you are before Christ. In, in spiritual sense, I mean, how, how helpless you are without Christ. But, but the rich and the poor, it's not, I'm not saying we have to be everybody at the same amount. What James is saying here church, stop giving people special treatment just because they're rich and powerful. Stop ordaining people as elders just because they have a lot of money. And for crying out loud, get rid of your VIP sections. Just get rid of it. Stop making God out to be a beggar who is dependent upon money to do his cause? No, that is not the God we worship. What he wants is faithfulness. Church, stop being so scared to consider friendship with other Christians or other people who may not have as much money as you do. And, and I know, I, I, I get it. I know, especially perhaps in, 
in this culture, in this city, there's this angst that we have that if I become close friends with someone else who's not in my financial strata, they're going to end up asking me for money. And, and we're scared of that. We're anxious about that. So we're so protective against it. And look, that might happen. I don't know. But what James is saying here, risk. Risk it. Don't prejudge them like that. Risk for the sake of the gospel. Risk. If something like that happens, then cross that bridge when you get there. But there is a chance that a beautiful, God-glorifying, gospel-saturated friendship that makes no sense to the world might occur. Risk. Battle the temptation of organizing church around the goal of being accepted by the world. Listen, you'll never be able to start loving the world until you stop idolizing their opinion of you. You'll never be able to truly love the world until you stop idolizing their opinion of you. Sometimes you have to love someone more than you love their opinion of you. Fight this addiction that we've always had and probably will continue to struggle with this side of eternity. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Why? Because God has made you his neighbor when he came down for you and mercifully took the judgment that you deserved. You know why a lot of addicts are able to break free from their bad habits? Usually there's there's a powerful reason strong enough to to encourage them to break loose out of it. And and that motivation usually isn't financially. It's not because it's, it's using up their money. They don't care about that. If you're addicted to something, you don't care about your career. The motivation isn't to revamp your career. The motivation isn't because of what people think of you. That, that usually isn't. The motivation isn't even really your own life. People would, would, would serve their addictions to death. Usually, and research has said, the, the biggest reason of why somebody is able to break out of addiction is because there's a loved one they no longer want to hurt. A child, their child, their spouse, They don't want to hurt them anymore. That's usually the one thing that's powerful enough to make them want to endure the hard work of breaking free from this addiction. If we ever want to break out of this addiction of loving the world's opinions and therefore organizing church in in that way, we have to fall in deeper love with Christ. We have to find him to be valuable enough and worthy enough for us to endure the long, long road of recovery. We're never going to break free from our addiction of being accepted by the world unless we continually behold him who was rejected by the world so that he may embrace you. Will you fall in love with him in such a way that we would break free from the addiction that's haunted us for hundreds of years? Will we? I pray we will. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those passages that really brings us to our knees, that really makes us think and reanalyze our lives and the way we've lived it. And I pray, Father, as you always do when we uh, read your word, you never desire us to just remain in the deep shadows of our sin, in the ugly mud of our depravity, but you've always desired for us to then be lifted up as we see our sin be washed 
like Christ on that cross. We'll never be able to give mercy to others unless we see he who gave us mercy first on that cross. He didn't just give us money. He gave us something more valuable, his life, himself. We who are poor in spirit, we who are spiritually broke, are made now as an inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the royal king himself became poor for us. Is this not the way Christians are meant to live? Help us, Father. Move toward uh, sobriety. In the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, for the glory of your name, build up your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.